Bible, Revelation chapter 20, last book in, in your Bible, Revelation chapter 20. If you've gone to the book of maps, you've gone too far, so make sure you just go to Revelation chapter 20. And let's go ahead and stand out of respect and reverence for God's word as we read Revelation chapter 20. The title of this morning's message is Man's Last Day in God's Court. And this, of course, refers to the great white throne judgment, which speaks of the judgment of the unsaved, those who die unconverted. Revelation chapter 20, we'll pick it up in verse number 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before your throne of grace and mercy and pray that you'd open our minds, that we would behold wondrous things out of thy law. I pray, Father, that you would bless your word to those who have not come to true repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, that this would be the day of their salvation, that you would draw them by thy Holy Spirit through the preached truth of your word, and that they would come humbly and truly to faith in the crucified and risen Savior. I pray, Lord, also for those who are saved this morning, that you would help us and you would give us an eternal perspective of the fate of those who die in their sins without Christ as their Lord and Savior, and that you would motivate us as believers to greater faithfulness and the great task of evangelism of proclaiming the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation to every creature. pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would glorify yourself in your truth, We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. I remember when I was in eighth grade, uh, being very impressed by a substitute teacher. He came in, and of course the boys like it when a teacher can come and play sports. And he came in, he played with the boys, he was substituting, and he was really good at playing softball. They threw him the ball, and boy, he hit it over the fence. And man, all the boys were just real impressed with him, man. This guy was the, the teacher to have for the week or two that he was there. Well... His name was Mr. Brothers, and uh, I never heard of him after that, and uh, that was when I was in eighth grade. Later on, as a young man, 13 years ago, when I first, was married to my, first got married to my wife, I worked in the schools, and I saw him again. He was the vice president, uh, vice uh, principal of a school, then became the principal of an elementary school that was affiliated in the school district where I worked. On July 6th, of course, that's a good day, despite the tragedy that happened, that's my birthday, but July 6, 2003, I remember watching the news, and there was a telecast there, and all the Bakersfield channels, that's where I lived in Bakersfield, had on the screen the picture of Mr. Brothers. Mr. Brothers that day was, looked for, was being looked for by the FBI and by uh, law enforcement locally and nationally. They were looking for him because he was a suspect in the killing of his wife, and of his mother-in-law and his three children. And so they sought him out. I remember, boy, I, I remember him. 
I remember him very well, just like it was yesterday. And now he was on the news. When they finally got him, of course, they arrested him and brought him to trial. It was one of the biggest trials in Bakersfield history. And when he was in trial, of course, it was very similar to the O.J. Simpson case. Everybody was there, all the news media. Everybody wanted to find out whether he did it or not. And everybody was there, and everyone was glued to the television, going through the whole trial, and then finally came to the decision where they gave him the death penalty and found him guilty of murdering two adults and three of his own children because it came down to he didn't want to pay child support. What a tragedy. And I remember the courtroom scene, how intense everybody was, and watching this man in this courtroom face a judge who did not know whether he was innocent or guilty, was going to judge him based on the limited facts that were at hand. This passage this morning describes a greater courtroom scene. It describes the final sentencing of all the lost. It is the most serious, sober, and tragic passage in the entire Bible. Commonly known as a great white throne judgment, it will take place in a courtroom setting where all the dead who have died unconverted without true and saving faith in Jesus Christ are brought before the throne of God and judged according to their works. The accused, all the unsaved who ever lived, will be resurrected to experience a trial like no other. There will be no debate about the innocence or the guilt of those who stand before God. No one will be there to say it's society's fault. There will be no lawyer to stand up and say it was the environment that caused him to do that. There will be no paid psychologist there to say, no, it was because his shoes were too tight when he was a child, therefore he did such and such. No one will be there, no lawyer to play the race card. There will be no debate over the guilt of those who stand before God's throne. There will be a prosecutor, but there will be no defender. An accuser, but no lawyer. There will be an indictment, but no defense mounted in defense of the accused. The convicting evidence will be presented with no rebuttal, no cross-examination. There will be an utterly holy and righteous judge and no jury. And there will be no appeal for the sentence that he uh, pronounces. The guilty will be punished eternally with no possibility of parole from a prison, which there are no escapes. The guilty will be punished eternally with no possibility of ever escaping their sentence by an eternally holy and just God. The beloved Apostle John records this vision as he's on the island of Patmos. No doubt he is shaken by what he sees. Frightened even at this as all the unsaved throughout human history are brought before the all-seeing eyes of a holy and just God. Ever since the beginning of time, Satan's tactics have always been to deny the Word of God and in essence he has denied that there is no judgment. It is a lie. Ever since the fall, Satan, who is the father of lies, according to John chapter 8, verse 44, has perpetrated, has preached, has proclaimed the lie that there is no judgment. Death ends it all. When you die, you just die like a dog, get buried, and it's all over. But it is a lie. Genesis 3, 4 records a lie that the serpent told to Eve. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, even though God said, The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt 
surely die. A double negative in the original language, emphasizing the absolute nature. The moment you partake of that fruit, God said, you will surely for sure die. Yet the devil comes out and says, you're not going to die. What nonsense! You're going to be judged, judgment. Ooh, I'm scared. Come on, it's just a lie. But the truth of the matter is, is the devil who is the father of all lies. Despite the vain and foolish speculations of men, the true and living God is the supreme judge of the whole universe. A judge which, which every individual in this room will have to give an account before him. His judgment of unbelievers will be just, and the reason why is because he is just. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 says, He is the rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. God's will is the supreme standard of justice and equity. And He wills nothing but what is just, right, and true. Nothing outside of God Himself compels Him to act justly. Justice is His very nature. Thus, all of God's acts towards people are perfectly just. Sinners have all wronged God's justice, but God's justice never wrongs them, nor could it ever. No one at the great white throne judgment will have the slightest grounds for complaint. Say, God, you're unfair. You you don't understand the way I was raised. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand. No, every mouth is shut on that day. As they stand before God who knows you better than you know yourself. God said of wayward Israel in Psalm 81 verse 11, But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. That is, many among God's God's people were saying we don't want anything to do with God. And yet that is the attitude today. To their equally stiff-necked descendants, Jesus declared in John 5.40, And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. And so here we find those who would not come to him. Not only could they not, but they did not want to come to him. Now they stand before a just and holy God, and we have a preview of the future. A future judgment that will take place as, as just as certain as we are that the sun will rise tomorrow, it is certain that there will be a great white throne judgment as recorded in the word of God. This simple but profound and powerful text describes the terrible, terrible reality of a final verdict and sentence upon sinners. And we'll look at it under four headings this morning. We're going to first of all look at the scene. We're going to look at the scene in verse 11 and 12, the scene of this final judgment. And then we're going to look at, secondly this morning, the summons to judgment. You know, you can miss some appointments. There's certain dentist appointments I put off, put off, put off, put off, knowing they're going to torture me. And of course, I was right, they did it. And so I put off those summons, that call to go, fulfill my appointment, but no one, no one will resist the summons of God to the great white throne judgment. We'll look at this scene of this judgment, the summons to judgment, the standard. The standard of judgment. How is God going to judge men? And we'll see that God will judge the unsaved perfectly according to their own works. Both their deeds and their thoughts and their actions. And the last thing we're going to see is their sentence at the great white throne judgment. Their sentence is not ten years of 
hard service in a state prison with color TV and cable and a tennis court. No, it is a just and holy judgment, a sentence that will last for all eternity. So let us look at our text this morning. We come to the scene of judgment in verse 11. John writes, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Here we find in one brief, straightforward, clear statement, John describes the appalling and terrifying scene. The vision of the great white throne judgment which follows those of the millennium and the second coming. And immediately precedes that of the new heaven and the new earth. First we see that John sees a great white throne. This emphasizes the unerring, the absolute, total, sovereign rule of God. It is called great not only because of its size, but because its significance is its majesty, its absolute authority over all men and all creation. It is white, symbolizing its purity, its holiness, and justice. This judge will not take any bribes. The verdict handed down from this throne will be absolutely righteous and just. Psalms 9 and verse 7 reminds us, The Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared His throne for judgment. And He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. God will do and judge perfectly. Daniel, back in the Old Testament, got a preview of this judgment. In Daniel chapter number 7 and verse 9. He says, I beheld the thrones were cast down and the ancients of days did sit, whose garment was as white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands of thousands ministered unto him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And judgment was set. The books were opened. Jesus described this scene that we're looking at in John chapter 5 and verse 29 as the resurrection of damnation. Of this judgment, the Apostle Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, But after thy hardness and impotent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Even more awe-inspiring than the throne was the vision that John had of Him who sat upon it. The judge on the throne was none other than the eternal, almighty, sovereign God. God is described, if you turn with me quickly, to Revelation chapter 4. And we see what's going around, going on around the throne of God in heaven. Revelation 4 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rested not night or day, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. When those beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fell down before Him that sat on the throne and worshipped Him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, 
Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. What is going around the throne is the worship of Almighty God, causing men to fall on their faces before God, in awe of He who sits upon the throne. Sharing this throne with the Father is the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 5 and verse 22 Jesus said, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So we know the Father is active in this judgment, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, verse 26, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment. The Apostle Paul warned the pagan philosophers of Athens in Acts 17 of a day of judgment. When he came and approached him, he didn't come to to tell the philosophers on Athens of how great they were and how special they were and try to sell him a soft-pedaled gospel. When he came to him, he confronted them with the truth and said in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, because that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. For he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he raised them from the dead. The fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is demonstrating to the lost that the fact that he rose from the dead is a proof, a sign, that there will be judgment for the unsaved if they do not repent turn from their sin, and by faith turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. After describing this vision, if you would turn back to Revelation 20, after describing this vision of the judge on his throne, John noted a startling reality. He says, And earth and heaven fled away. This amazing statement is basically the uncreation of the universe. In the same way that God spoke, the universe into existence out of nothing. So now he speaks the universe in, an un, in a sense, makes it uncreated. The present earth and heaven will not merely be moved or reshaped, since John saw in his vision that no place was found for them. They'll be uncreated, go out totally out of existence. Isaiah 65 and verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Then in verse 12, John says that he saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. All the unsaved are seen standing before God. Daniel in the Old Testament described this judgment this way in Daniel 12 too. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now think about it. There will be a resurrection for them with bodies prepared for eternity. But for the believer, the judgment of our sin has fallen already. Already. The judgment of our sin for those who have come to true and saving faith in Jesus Christ. Our judgment has fallen upon the Son of God as He hung on Calvary's cross. So with the Apostle Paul, we can say what Romans 8.1 tells us. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Why? 
Because God no longer condemns sin. No, God has already condemned sin in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. To emphasize the all-encompassing scope of judgment, John says both the small and the great, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the mighty, and those without any power, those who were well-known and those who were unknown. John Phillips, one commentator, writes, There's a terrible fellowship here. The dead, small and great, stand before God. Dead souls are united to dead bodies in a fellowship of horror and despair. Little men and paltry women whose lives were filled with pettiness, selfishness, and nasty little sins will be there. Those whose lives amounted to nothing will be there. Whose very sins were a dowry, a drop, meaning spiteful, peevish, groveling, vulgar, common, and cheap. The great will be there, men who sin with a high hand and would dash and would courage against God. Men like Alexander the Great and Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, we could add there Hussein, will be present men who went in for wickedness on a grand scale with the world for their stage, who died unrepentant before God. Now, one and all are arranged and on their way to be damned. A horrible fellowship of congregated, the congregated dam will stand for the first and the last time before God. This is the scene of judgment. Secondly, let us mark the summons to come into judgment. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. As the next scene in this ultimate courtroom drama unfolds, the prisoners are summoned from their cells to come before the all-seeing eye of the judge of the universe. Since their deaths, their souls have been tormented in a place of punishment. Now the time has come for them to be sentenced to a final and eternal place, the very lake of fire. Before the sea was uncreated and went out of existence, it gave up the dead which were in it. The sea may be singled out because it's seemingly the most difficult place for a body to be resurrected according to human thinking. Think about it. A person dies at sea in the Titanic. They die in an accident out there and their bodies go to the bottom and the fish eat them. People say, well, how's God going to raise up their body if the fish have eaten them? Let's see if God can do that. Let's see if God can do that. You're kidding me? Of course God can do that. Of course God will rearrange their molecules and bring them together and give them a body that is fit to suffer the eternal wrath of a thrice holy God. He'll call up the dead from the sea. Those who died in the flood, those who died on the Titanic, those who died at war in the oceans, they will be summoned. Death symbolizes all the places on land which God will resurrect new bodies for the unrighteous dead. Hell, which is a Greek word for Hades, used ten times in the New Testament, always in reference to a place of punishment. They're all called forward. They're all summoned. And they all come. Well, how are they going to be judged? Isn't God going to give chances? Well, what is the standard of judgment? Our third point, the standard of judgment, beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Watch this. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Here it is. Books are opened. Daniel says the same thing in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 10. Books are opened. These books contain the thought 
That the every thought, every word, every deed. Oh, but I did that a long time ago. Oh, I did But it's recorded by God. Every act. God has kept perfect, accurate, complete records of every person's life. And the dead will be judged from the things written in those books according to their deeds. Sinners' works will be measured against God's perfect and holy standard. By the way, our standard is not our neighbor. Well, I'm not that bad of a person. Down the street, that guy, you know, he's on crack and he beats his wife and he, you know, kicks his dog and he, he, he cut the cat. And boy, he's a wicked guy. But not me. I'm an honorable citizen. Well, he's not the standard. The standard is God's law. The Ten Commandments, they're not the Ten Recommendations. They're the Ten Commandments. And everybody will give an account. Those who want to be saved by works, they're given their opportunity. Jesus gave the standard in Matthew 5.48. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's not fair. That's the standard. 1 Peter 1.15, But as he which hath called you is holy, so ye be holy in all manner of conversation. Paul writes in Galatians 3.10, for, for, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, God's law is given to show man the utter and total impossibility for you to gain salvation by your own works. And these men who have rejected the free offer of the gospel in Jesus Christ have said no thank you to God and they're trying to, they try to save themselves by their own works. Now their own works will condemn them because they have violated, they have broken the very law of God. The very law of God that says thou shalt not commit adultery. Which Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery with her already in your heart. Now what man hasn't broken that? And the ones that didn't, I'm very worried about them. They're in trouble in other areas. They've broken the law of God. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Don't lie. Well, it's a white lie. And what is that? A lie that you approve of and God, God does as well? No, these are the commandments of God and they will be judged according to their works. God's judgment of impotent, unbelieving sinners' evil deeds will include their thoughts. Psalms 44 and verse 21 says, Shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Today there's a made-up constitutional right of it's a right of privacy. If you murder your child, it's a right of privacy. It's a right of privacy. God knows nothing of the right of privacy. His eye, his eye beholds the evil and the good. He'll bring out the public and the secret on the day of judgment. Jesus said himself in Luke 8, 17, For nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. Everything, the thoughts of men, their actions in private, their thought life, not only will their thoughts be judged and their actions for breaking God's law, but watch this, even their words. Even their words. Oh, but how about if it was just entertainment? Doesn't that count? You know, if it's entertainment, it's not really a, really a bad word. It's entertaining. What did Jesus say? In Matthew 12, 36, But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof on the day of judgment. 
By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Notice, biblical truth does not change for a self-centered American society. It is American Christians who must conform to God's word, not God's word to our culture. Oh, it's in private. I've seen it on DVD in private. It was for adults who were adults. God's standard doesn't change whether you're a teenager or an adult. There's no kiddie hell or teenage hell. Adult hell. Hell is for unrepentant believers that will not come to faith in Jesus Christ. Each person's life will be individually evaluated and each person's punishment will be consistent with that evaluation. So what am I saying? There's different degrees of suffering in hell. That's what I'm saying. All men will suffer in hell, no doubt, but some greater than others. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works were done in you, had been done in Tyre and Zidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He's saying to Jewish cities, with Jewish people, who would go to church on every Saturday go to synagogue, study the the, the Torah, study the Word of God. They didn't drink, they didn't smoke, they didn't chew, and they didn't go with girls who do. They were good people, good citizens. And the people, the pagan people of Tyre and Zidon were people that lived wicked and vile lives. They lived for money, had no thought of God, lived wicked, vile, licentious, sexually immoral lives. It was all about money to them. And Jesus is now comparing this Jewish city that rejected him with the cities of Tyre and Zidon. He says, but I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Zidon on the day of judgment than for you, unrepentant church member, American who has accesses to the truths of God's word and lives rejection and lives in rejection of that truth. It will be more tolerable for the heathen cannibal in the jungle who had not the gospel presented him, who died and went to hell. It will be more tolerable for him than for a good citizen of America who dies unrepentant without faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus went on to say, and thou Capernaum, his hometown, saw the most miracles. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you, that should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, my own hometown. That's what our Lord is saying. Now, you, you, don't, you don't understand. To be compared to Sodom as a Jew is the ultimate insult. That, 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 that's lower than dirt. He's looking at these good church-going people who looked at Jesus and they looked at his ministry and said, oh, what Jesus did, that's good. That I respect that. I don't think I'm going to follow him. But all oh, that's good and I respect. I'm a moral person. I'm clean cut, etc., etc. And Jesus says, but the sodomites who lived in aggressive, militant, open, wicked, homosexual lifestyle, on the dead judgment, God will be more merciful unto the sodomite than to that church-going hypocrite who rejects Christ. Why? I thought it would be the other way around. To whom much is given, much will be required. Yet how about you? You sit under the preaching of God's word unconverted. You have not come to repent of your, your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. You think God is a fire assurance and policy. One day when you get in trouble, you'll get that pulse and be all right with God. 
No, my friend, you come to the living Christ, the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and you come on bended knee with repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. You must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. But if you do not come to true repentance towards God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be worse for you than the cannibal pagans right now, running around naked in the jungle. Why? Because to whom much is given, much will be required. Jesus said of the Pharisees who rejected him. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 40, that they devour widows' houses for pretense, make long prayers. Oh, they know how to pray. They know how to save the, save the saints like Americans do today. Oh, I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. Jesus came into my heart. I asked Jesus. I talked to the man upstairs. All terms unbiblical they just used, but popular. These shall receive the greater damnation. Why? Because they were so close to the truth and yet rejected it. So here they are. They're being judged according to their works. That is the standard of judgment. Fourthly, let us note the sentence that is given in verse 14 and 15. The sentence that is given. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here the evidence is irrefutable. The verdict is rendered quickly. Judgment is swiftly executed upon those that stand before him. As the sentence is passed, death and Hades, the grave, the temporary place of punishment. Those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. On July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And there as he preached and read his manuscript under candlelight, as God's Spirit moved sovereignly through the preached word, men and women were brought to true repentance, falling on their knees, crying for God to have mercy. It is recorded as he preached this this message about hell, about judgment, about the sovereignty of God. It is recorded that a man rushed down the aisle saying, Mr. Edwards, have mercy on us. But that was then. This is now. June 19, 2002 edition, Los Angeles Times published an article called Hold the Fire and the Brimstone, documenting that the mention of hell is all but unknown in modern-day American pulpits. Bill Ferris, pastor of Crown Valley Vineyard Christian Fellowship, told the Times that he believes hell doesn't preach anymore. And he doesn't want to preach on it. Why? Quote, because it isn't sexy enough. It doesn't make the people want to groove at church. He doesn't like it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't. The Times observed that not only does Ferris not preach on hell, but his flock shows, quote, little interest in it. Harvey Cox, Jr., liberal religious historian at Harvard Divinity School, said, quote, you can go to a whole lot of churches week after week, and you'll be startled to hear not even one mention of hell. Rick Warren's Saddleback Church website discovered thousands and hundreds of topics that he's preached on, not once on hell. Robert Schuller said, quote, what is hell? It is the loss of pride that naturally follows separation from God, the ultimate and unfailing source of a soul's sense of self-respect. A person is in hell when he has lost his self-esteem. Can you imagine any condition more tragic in life and eternity with shame? Hell is loss of self-esteem. This is the gospel according to modern-day humanistic, self-centered psychology. No, that's not what hell is. We're reading of hell here. This, it is the just 
and deserving place where sinners go for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and living a life of willful, wanton sin. This is what our Lord said. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And the word destroy there doesn't mean the loss of being, it means the loss of well-being. Fear him. The clearest and most vivid of the New Testament terms used to describe the final hell, the lake of fire, is Gehenna. Gehenna, of course, was a, was a physical place, as well as Jesus used that word as a word picture. It was a dump next to Jerusalem, where they would throw the dead bodies of animals and of people, of criminals that had no one that wanted their bodies. And the trash would constantly be burning there. And the bodies of animals and of executed criminals would be eaten with maggots, and there was constantly fire there. Jesus took that vivid word picture and says that, that dump there that's always on fire full of worms and maggots, that is a picture, just a small picture of the eternal reality that there's another place where the fire is not quenched and where the worm dieth not, and that is an eternal lake of fire that we see before us. Jesus said, if thy hand offend thee and cut it off, it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands and to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, Mark 9 43. Hell will be God's cosmic eternal dump. Its inmates will be burning literally forever. But the rest of the dead who do not participate in the first resurrection will face the second death, which is defined as a lake of fire. Listen how Jude 1, verse 7 describes Sodom and Gomorrah, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. In other words, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. God literally rained down hell from heaven on them. Jesus says that is an illustration of the fact that one day there will be burnings for those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. But this is not true for the believer. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, God's anger, His wrath, His holiness has burned once in one other place besides hell. It has burned upon Calvary. As the Son of God died as a propitiation to appease the very wrath that the Father has towards sinners, as Christ died there, the, the, God's fury was unleashed upon Him as He cried, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? And it is there that salvation from God's wrath is found. It is there in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is there where every unconverted church member, every well-meaning citizen must flee in saving faith to Jesus Christ and turn to Him, repent, and believe the Gospel. He's your only hope. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, Paul writes, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The power is not in the preacher's, the preacher's persuasion. The power is not in a tear-jerking illustration. The power is in the Gospel. And that is what you must believe. The good news that there is a Savior from sin. Salvation is offered fully and freely to all repentant sinners. And so I say it is offered to you. This does not need to be the picture of your destiny. But you must flee to Christ. You must go to Christ. When should I do it? Do it now! 
Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Repent today. Don't make bargains with God. I say every time I go into the prison, you may make a bargain with the DA, my friend, but you ain't going to make a bargain with God. You have nothing that God needs. But oh, he has everything you need. You better lay down the weapons of your warfare and come on bended knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Take Him today. Don't die and perish in your sin. Look to Calvary. Look to a crucified, risen Savior. He alone is mighty safe. He's able to save the worst of sinners, the most vile of sinners. He's able to save unto the uttermost if you'll come to Him by faith. Oh, my friend, the Gospel is an invitation and it is a command. It is a command to be obeyed, for you to submit and to believe savingly on Christ. Do it now, for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless your word as you promise always to do. Bless it to the heart of saved and unsaved. Glorify yourself during this time as we meditate upon the truths of your word. Oh God, help us. Help us to respond to the truth the powerful truth of these eternal realities before us. Pastor Smith. And stand, please.